Welcome to Somato Psychics, where we explore the interactions between physiology and psychology. I'm your host, Nancy Brown, strength and movement coach in New York City. In each episode, I interview an expert on the human organism. This episode, I have with me Megan Weiss, registered dietitian who specializes in nutrition counseling for eating disorder recovery, as well as subclinical disordered eating, and has a private practice in the Flatiron. Today, we're talking about how the physiology of starvation affects the psychological presentation of anorexia. Megan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. So let's just jump right in. Can you tell us a bit about the behaviors and psychological profile of your typical anorexic patient? Absolutely. So typically prior to the onset of anorexia, you will see the psychological profile of someone who's predisposed towards anorexia can include um, a high degree of perfectionism, high level of achievement in school or in work. Um, Folks that tend to struggle with anorexia also tend to have higher anxiety in general and high social anxiety. So those are all personality characteristics that can lead to and can correlate with anorexia. Once an individual is in the throes of anorexia, however, the picture changes. Um, you will often see that folks who struggle with anorexia are very preoccupied with food, and that can manifest in several different ways. It can include a lot of diet discussion, a lot of concern about calories or macronutrients, a preoccupation with so-called healthy foods versus unhealthy foods. And at the same time, there can be uh, an ongoing uh, preoccupation with all kinds of foods. So there tends to be individuals who will accumulate like menus or who will look at quote unquote food porn online um, that can bake a lot and then never eat the foods that they bake. So there are a lot of behaviors that can can perpetuate that obsession with food, but not an actual ingesting of food. And on the other side, there's several behaviors that they can start to accumulate in order to reduce the quantity of food that they're eating or to make themselves feel more comfortable with eating. And we call those behaviors food rituals because they do become very ritualistic almost OCD-like around the food. So this can include things like cutting food into very small pieces, heating and reheating food, over uh, salting food, pouring hot sauce on food uh, to make it less edible or to make the flavor very intense. I've had, I've worked with individuals who have uh, drunk balsamic vinegar or put uh, hot sauce over everything that they ate and uh, the intensity of the flavor actually is something that they they seek out. Mm. Yeah, so it's almost like there's an inverse correlation between the preoccupation with food or even maybe the intensity of flavor that they're seeking and the actual quantity of food that Absolutely. they're consuming. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about what the physiological profile of an anorexic patient would be. Sure thing. So someone who is struggling with anorexia will display a rapid weight loss. Oftentimes uh, anorexia is diagnosed based on BMI currently. Um, and someone who is below 95% of their ideal body weight is, um, is struggling with food and has a high drive for thinness. 
that's usually what is used to to diagnose someone with anorexia. However, I often see that there are people who live in larger bodies who can exhibit what we call atypical anorexia, which is that rapid weight loss, that preoccupation with food, um, and ritualistic behaviors around food, but maybe their weight is within the BMI normal range or even higher, and uh, they may just they may display like other signs of wasting, like clavicle wasting or temporal wasting that show that they actually have not had a healthy weight loss. Mm. Yes, it's almost uh, more important, like what the contrast is between, I hesitate to use the word set point, but it's almost like where the body wants to be, right? Or where the body tends to be and where the conscious person wants that body to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I like to use the term biologically appropriate weight Mm -hmm. since you referred to set point. Um, And that I find to be one of the better terms and the more body positive terms Mm -hmm. in the industry. Um, Ideal body weight and BMI are based on a height weight ratio that was developed years ago based on basically like the bell curve of where the population was. So they don't really discern where people's healthiest weight is. And individually, we know that everyone has very varied genetic um, qualities that would predispose them towards different body shapes and sizes. So if someone is at their biologically appropriate weight, but maybe that doesn't match with what the external culture is saying is appropriate for them, and they lose weight through all these different methods that are hard on their body, then they they can be what you would call atypically anorexic, um, someone who is unnaturally trying to reduce their weight and um, is not, and that is not where their body thrives at. Mm. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, go a little bit more in depth with the physiological stuff and talk a little bit about um, what goes on with the brain and the hormones of an anorexic patient. Sure. So, and and then how those might uh, correlate with the psychological effects, I suppose. Absolutely. So when you're talking about somebody's brain and kind of the effects of malnourishment on the brain, whether it's self-imposed or it's imposed by uh, conditions, you will find that their brain is deeply affected. There's less blood flow that's able to get to the brain. Um, That means that the brain has to compensate by either hyper-focusing or um, not being able to focus at all. So you'll often see that these these behaviors that we see in anorexic individuals, like the cutting of food into small pieces, is a very hyper-focused behavior. Um, And it can also accompany some cognitive uh, disabilities. So with people who have struggled with chronic malnourishment, there are definitely times where they will have a hard time like completing sentences or understanding things that are being told to them. And that's why I think it's so interesting that it often happens in these very high achieving individuals, because as the eating disorder gets progressive, you will find that uh, these same individuals are no longer able to show up in the same way that they were able to before at work, at home, in their relationships, um, 
and in school because their ability to focus starts to dissipate. Mm. Mm. Um, and then you also mentioned hormones. So hormonally, when an individual is, um, especially when women are underweight, under the weight that their body is happiest at, one of the things that will get sacrificed first are these kind of secondary uh, systems. So your body wants to prioritize your heart and your brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Those are mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. you want to keep breathing. You want your, your heart to keep beating. Those are the things that your brain is going to and your body is going to focus on continuing to, uh, to control and to work and, and to thrive. So those are going to be the last things that your body will lose in terms of malnourishment. Um, and the kind of more secondary things like the GI tract or like um, the reproductive organs, those are kind of those are for times when you're thriving. So a lot of times where it'll show up is in the cessation of menses and the reduction of uh, hormones. So um, on the surface, this may seem like it's not as big of a deal, though it's very easy to detect. You know when your um, menstrual cycle has become dysregulated. You know, uh, it. the reality of it is that along with that, that's that symbolizes a process that your body has given up. And as a result, there are a lot of other processes that are dependent on it that it also gives up. So this can start to affect bone health. Um, estrogen is very protective of bones. And so when your body is no longer producing as much estrogen, this can start to have an effect on your bone density. So we see a lot of low bone density in women who are struggling with eating disorders. We also, um, in men, will see low testosterone because again, hormones are a secondary uh, body function. So it's not as prioritized as cardiac function and brain function and lungs. Mm. Yeah, so I competed uh, years ago as a bikini competitor in the National Physique Committee, which is like a amateur bodybuilding association, and I had to diet down to very low body fat. I probably dieted down past where I needed to to get on stage, and um, I'm 5'11". I currently weigh somewhere in like the low 160s, and I'm quite lean. I got down to 135 oh, wow. and had probably, um, you know, 11% body fat, something like that. Um, and although a, a scale, like one of those in-body scales probably would have said less. Um, anyway, it was a very uh, interesting experience for me because um, I was paying attention as it was happening. And I remember when my, I've always, since I was a little girl, been super preoccupied with uh, men just like boy crazy mm -hmm. and I remember for the first time in my life not being interested in men and actually experienced that as a relief you know um, but just became like hyper focused on you know exactly what you're talking about on food and just on the competition and that's all I thought about you know and, and then I was writing about it at the same time but I've experienced so much of what you're talking about I actually you know, hoarded uh, recipes and and uh, would buy more food than I was allowed to consume under you know the constraints my coach put on me, and all of this stuff. And um, what was so fascinating 
was that I thought I had given myself an eating disorder, but then once I actually put the weight back on, I nor it all normalized, right? Like my food focus went away. And I remember my coach telling me after the competition, because he actually is one of the few coaches who cares about the psychological health of his bodybuilders, um, saying, we want to get you to the point where you're an athlete. And again, and you're thinking more about your workout than the post-workout meal. And I remember him telling me this shortly after the competition. And I thought, uh, yeah, he just doesn't understand. He's not a foodie like me, <laughs> you know, but then sure enough, after like a couple months, I was like, oh yeah, this is why I got into it in the first place. Cause I love lifting weights. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, if you could, yeah, if you could maybe like talk about the process of regaining healthy weight and what that looks like, what your work with, uh, people with eating disorders looks like. Sure. And thank you for sharing your story. I think that's really important. Um, you know, a lot of the, the work of recovery that I do with clients also involves working with a therapist and a doctor because there's so many complicated aspects to it. Um, you know, something that you mentioned actually something in me about how nice it felt to not have that libido anymore. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find with a lot of my clients is that it may start with a drive for thinness or a drive to achieve, but it also becomes a way of coping with complicated emotions. And wouldn't it be great if we could all just turn off our feelings and for some people their experience is that they can turn off their feelings by not eating breakfast or not eating dinner and so that becomes kind of a cure-all but the long-term result of that is that the feelings never get dealt with Mm -hmm. and the eating disorder gets fed in that way so Part of what I do in the piece where I come in with clients is that I tend to be the person who's talking about the food and the behaviors that they can change um, and addressing some of the feelings that might come up on a small level. So I, first of all, in order to start working with a client, I need to make sure that they're medically stable. I can't work with someone who is at risk for refeeding syndrome. Mm-mm. And if you don't know what refeeding syndrome is, that's for people who have severely restricted calorie intakes over prolonged periods of time, can be at risk for their heart stopping um, and a variety of system shutdowns when they start refeeding. The reason why we know about this is the Ansel Keys study that was done way back in the 40s, which I can talk a little bit more about later. Um, but just, you know, to not to scare anyone off of, you know, increasing their food intake, but it is very important to make sure that you have some uh, basis and ha- are talking to a doctor who understands some of the risks that are associated with that. So if I'm working with a client who I think is at risk for that, I will always make sure that they're cleared by a doctor first. Some people need to do this process inpatient or in a residential facility. All the clients that I work with right now are outpatient. So I work with people who are at a place where they can start doing the refeeding process outpatient. Um, It involves increasing your food intake you start slowly, but eventually 
a lot of people need to increase their food to very high amounts because the body wants to stay the same even if it's not in a healthy place. Oh, yeah. So a lot of times I will work with, especially if I'm working with younger clients like teenagers, I can be working with someone who needs like 4,000 calories a day and they're not doing any additional movement. (laughs) They are merely refeeding, you know, and that is because the body will go into uh, hypermetabolism. It will start to burn more calories. And part of that is because you're repairing all these systems that have been down. Right, and that requires a lot of energy. Yes. Right? To rebuild organ tissue and Absolutely. All that. Oh, sure. Yeah, fascinating. So that will, that makes it a very difficult transition for some people and they choose to do that more in a setting, like a residential setting because it's so challenging. Um, you know, and other people are able to do it outpatient, but it takes a lot of diligence and it is as much work as any kind of change in your life. And, and I think very hard because of the emotional piece involved too. If you started this out and you got adjusted to this idea of not feeling and not feeling your brain and all of that, then once the food comes in, all these feelings and anxieties come up and those need to be dealt with. Mm. Um, In terms of what you were saying for you, you know, and your story, something that also struck me was that your, you know, when you started to feed yourself, you got back your brain Mm -hmm. and, um, and you became certain that that's not a place you wanted to go again. Mm -hmm. And I think that that bodes well for you as a person, because sometimes, um, for individuals with anorexia, they, you know, really struggle with letting go of uh, that feeling of restricting. And there's often a lot of body image issues that crop up as they start to restore weight. Um, And that can be very challenging because the eating disorder kind of keeps pulling them back in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, a, a big portion of the work, the long haul of the work does have to be done therapeutically and in discussing like the, the reality of where their body's actually happiest and most thriving and, um, dealing with the kind of what I call the goggles of the eating disorder. So when an individual with anorexia looks in the mirror, they almost have a similar response to, um, and they've done MRIs on this. It's almost a similar response to someone with schizophrenia. Um, in that what they're seeing kind of becomes distorted uh, almost in a hallucinogenic way. Oh, wow. So what they're seeing like will become like kind of that hyper focus or inability to focus when they see like a certain body part that they tend to obsess over, it kind of becomes magnified in their brain. And the same thing happens with food, right? So if you put a normal plate of food in front of someone who has been restricting for very long periods of time, they might also experience that same magnification with that. And the food might seem overwhelmingly large. And when you sit with someone who is struggling with this, uh, if you're sympathetic or emotionally um, available at all, you can also start to feel like, oh my God, maybe that is so big. And you're like, no, it's just one slice of pizza. You know, but in the the brain of the person who's struggling with that anorexia, that can become like a mountain. Do you know 
Um, obviously, I know your area of expertise is the body, but do you know what the root of that is? Like, is that a, like, is there any kind of, um, like, is that just something that's acquired over time? Um, or, what, you know, what's the mechanism behind that thought process or behind that distortion, I guess? Well, I, you know, I'm going to have to conjecture a little bit here. What, what is not everything is completely known yet scientifically. Mm-hmm. Um, what we know is just correlational, not mm-hmm, necessarily mm-hmm. causation. So, you know, when they've done MRIs in individuals with anorexia, when they're in the throes of their anorexia and they have less brain, uh, less, they have bigger ventricles, which are the spaces between the brain. Um, similar to people who struggle with Alzheimer's. Mm. Now, some of that can return as they refeed. So my theory based on that would be that some of it is coming from the malnourishment Mm -hmm. and the fact that there just isn't enough energy going into the brain in order for the brain to be able to think with a little bit uh, more clarity and to be out of that hyper-focus. Um, Some of the other behaviors that I talked about earlier are all documented in a, uh, in what I said, the Ansel Keys study, which was a study that was done in the 40s. Um, It was, they used conscientious non-objectors during World War II. They were concerned about the famine that was going on in Europe and the prospect of having to refeed people so they wanted to better understand starvation and the effects it had on people and so this is very ethically questionable but what they did was they recruited these volunteers and they slowly starved them over the period of several months Um, you know calorie restricted them below what their needs were and then observed what happened both in the a starvation process and also in the refeeding process and some of the behaviors we see in anorexic clients that we think are just part of their personalities or what caused the eating disorder what we found is those behaviors actually occurred in these individuals just through the starvation so um, you know many of these individuals would hoard salt packets and food they would hoard menus they would cut their food into tiny pieces Um, they had high food seeking behavior and that actually continued well after refeeding for a lot of them several of them became chefs um, (laughs) you know after they refed and you know so this preoccupation with food actually came from that period of starvation Um, And I think the difference maybe in the anorexic client is that genetic predisposition towards wanting that low body weight. And um, it's almost like the trigger gets flipped and Mm -hmm. then that's harder for them to combat and to resist. Mm. Um, So, uh, so yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. It seems like there's the predisposition and then, once the body reaches a certain point, you're just in a feedback loop. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the body, it's, it's almost mimics this concept of homeostasis or allostasis that you and I have talked about before, but, um, the body wants to remain the same, you know, um, and doesn't want to change too much. So, when you have gotten to a low body weight, it's even harder to get out of that feedback loop. 
Mm. Yeah, and then and then so I have a note here the that actually the presence of adipose tissue is part of what affects the sex hormones. So you actually have like certain body fat requirements you probably need to meet in order to have a healthy hormonal environment. Absolutely. Um, individual, I think a lot of times in our culture, fat gets equated with being bad, but like the reality is your body needs fat. It needs fat in order to, uh, function reproductively. It needs fat in order to, um, keep your body warm, you know, as, as a weight trainer, I'm sure you're aware that like there's intermuscular fat that actually Mm -hmm. energizes you and helps you be uh, more effective at what you do. Um, so, you know, this preoccupation with reducing body fat, um, can become detrimental and can, uh, destabilize the way the body was meant to function. And that's where you start to see systems break down in terms of, uh, bone density, hormonal regulation, fertility, libido, you know, all those things can start to shut down. And with that... Um, brain function does become limited as well. Can you talk a little bit about, obviously we know you're a dietitian, but just talk a little bit about your role within a recovery team. Sure. So typically when I work with an individual, I want to make sure they're with a doctor and with a therapist, even though I feel like I have had to become aware of a lot of the aspects of the medical and the therapeutic, um, my role is to deal with the behaviors. So um, I will often work with individuals to kind of grade the levels of anxiety they have around different foods and to start slowly incorporating and, and increasing the foods and the variety of foods that they consume. Um, a lot of what I do is translating some of the things that they may have heard from the doctor but are struggling with understanding, um, understanding how the medical impacts the food. So a lot of my clients struggle with uh, chronic gastrointestinal distress. Some of that is caused from the malnourishment, and some of it can only be cured by re-nourishing their body. Mm-hmm. So helping them understand what the best way is to do that how how the things interplay and affect each other so that they don't feel like they're not being heard and everyone's saying the problem is just in their heads and they just need to eat because that's not the case. They're actually dealing with real like stomach discomfort and intestinal discomfort and I don't want to invalidate that, but I also have to help them work through it. So a lot of the coping strategies I'll give them will be about some of those physical discomforts they feel when they have to start increasing their food and also figuring out ways to do that in a more comfortable way. A lot of my clients are afraid of foods that are maybe more dense in energy. And so they have a tendency to maybe eat lots of salads without dressing and say, wow, I ate so much food because there were five cups of lettuce in that meal. And yes, quantity-wise, five cups is a lot to put in your stomach. But with that particular individual, they could have done a grilled cheese sandwich and maybe had more bang for their buck, so to speak. So it's about finding those places where you can uh, increase somebody's energy intake to the least discomfort 
of their body and get them on track a little bit more quickly so their body can start thriving. You said something really interesting about um, increasing variability in the diet. Mm -hmm. And so do a lot of your uh, clients come to you with very small menus of foods that they're willing to eat? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) A lot of, um, not all of my clients, but generally many of my clients will come to me with a very short list of safe foods. And these are foods they feel very comfortable with eating. Um, they tend, they vary tremendously from person to person. You know, some people are more afraid of dairy. Some people are more afraid of fat. Some people are more afraid of carbohydrates. Each person is individual, but they tend to have a very short list of foods that they think are healthy and appropriate to eat. And if they eat foods outside of that, they often will characterize those meals as being out of control or binges, regardless of whether they are an objectively large quantity of food. Yeah, it's so interesting because it reminds me a lot of something that I encounter in the fitness world, which goes by the name I'm sure you're familiar with, orthorexia. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I really don't come in, into contact with it now in the world of strength sport because most people are just trying to get stronger and they're not super preoccupied with body composition. Um, you know, unless actually I do see it sometimes with people in smaller weight classes Mm -hmm. who are dieting to stay in weight classes, but, um, orthorexia is, um, kind of paranoia. You can correct me, but kind of paranoia around, um, the health of certain foods, but in, in the bro world, it's clean eating. Mm -hmm. And so, the coach that I refer the bodybuilding coach that I referred to earlier was Alberto Nunez and he does not I do not want any confusion he does not um, subscribe to these ideas at all the Mm -hmm. total opposite but the coach I had before him was extremely orthorexic Mm. and really wanted uh, to get me on board (laughs) with it and so you know he was asking me to send him photos of my food and was like very concerned about things like uh which uh color of bell peppers i was eating Mm. you know because uh, i guess red and yellow bell peppers have like higher sugar content you know it was like to that level and um it's wild i mean the the um it's it's really rampant in in a certain kind of subset of Mm -hmm the kind of bro or bodybuilding world Mm -hmm. and um it's very lore based and it's it's it just to me felt like um i don't know kind of trying to demarcate a small safe territory more than anything Yes, and I think you characterize orthorexia very well. I think of it as an unhealthy preoccupation with being healthy. Um, just in that it's, it can become so, min- like the people can become preoccupied so much with the minutia of the color of the bell pepper that you eat um, that they miss very glaring uh, lacks in the diet. It is not healthy to eat only kale and it is not healthy to eat only (laughs) cupcakes you know that your body cannot subsist on that right you know and i think 
um, orthorexia can exist uh, independent of a specific weight. It can lead to intermittent binge eating. Oh, absolutely rampant, rampant in this community. Because if food needs to be perfect, eventually your your caveman mind is going to take over. (laughs) Your cave girl mind is going to take over and be like, no, we need to survive. And so we're going to dive headlong into that mac and cheese or whatever the meal is that is has all the things that your uh health preoccupation won't allow Mm -hmm. and that um that is very common amongst many of my clients who maybe don't struggle with uh not all of whom struggle with anorexia but may struggle with binge eating disorder or bulimia or several other disorders or maybe not even disordered um clinically but just have a very fraught relationship with food that isn't very intuitive or in touch with their bodies. Mm. Great. Okay. Is there anything you'd like to add on to our discussion today? I know you have a whole wealth of knowledge. It's hard to pick something. It is very challenging to like find one or two things to to part with or to to tack on, but you know I think one thing that I always keep in mind there's it's a very small percentage of the population that struggles with pure anorexia nervosa. A lot of people will struggle with aspects of it, and I think it's really important to know that. You know, if you're struggling in your body and feeling comfortable with food and having a fraught relationship with food that can have intermittent restriction in it, that there is help out there for people. And it's, it, you know, the culture at large may not support it, but there are definitely people who are very well versed in eating disorders or if this isn't an eating disorder, more intuitive styles of eating and more health at every size inclusive styles of eating so I would encourage you to reach out if that's something that you relate to or struggle with wonderful where can people get in touch with you Megan well you can visit me at my website um, my website is www.makenmsrd.com that's m-a-i-k-e-n m-s-r-d.com um, you can follow me on twitter on my instagram um, and you can find out more in the show notes, I'm sure. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. That concludes today's episode of Somato Psychics. Show notes, including a link to Macon's website and her social media, will be up on my site, www.trainwithnancy.com backslash podcast. If you want to check out my own writing on fitness, gender politics, and embodiment, that's all up on trainwithnancy.com as well. We've got a bunch of exciting guests on the roster, including Dr. Pat Davidson, who's an expert on physiology, biomechanics, and neurology as they apply to fitness. If you don't want to miss it, please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. Until then, be well, my fellow organisms.